I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, conch fritters, Jimmy Dean, and the captain's chicken. The most important part of any journey begins in the stomach. It's the food imperative. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thanks, Todd. Uh, I really appreciate it. I hope you're doing well. This is uh, election day um, in the United States, and I'm sure the whole world is waiting with bated breath to see what sort of bad judgment the Americans are going to uh, exhibit today. Or maybe we could be surprised, and it'll be excellent, excellent judgment. But we shall see. Hopefully by the time this comes out, we know the results. <laughs> exactly. Well, more importantly is is that we're doing, um, I'm do, we're doing a show today on food. And the importance of food and why it is important. And, and sort of it fits into the whole political nature because food is a politic. And it's a type of politics. It drives politics. And that's why we're calling this, uh, this, new, this new episode the, the Food Imperative. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. thinking about this and and I want to thank a lot of people for their input food is you know there's a philosophy about food you know it 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 reflects some ethical political social artistic there's lots of defining aspects of food Um, it spurs uh, adventure it spurs trade it spurs discovery um, and it's, it's more about who we are, um, in terms of our diets and our eating habits and, and understanding it and understanding the philosophy of food, it leads to the idea that, that we can actually understand ourselves in, um, in a deeper and in a more authentic way. So that's sort of the premise of the food imperative. Now. I want everybody to kind of step back and think about this as a, as in a kind of global historical way. The most important food commodity, more than oil, more than anything you could think of right now, for the longest of times, was pepper. Pepper spurred the age of geographical discovery. Pepper was fought over. The whole idea that you have a salt and a pepper shaker on your table is a testament to thousands of years of cultivation, wars, and preservation of food. It's all about the preservation of food. Today we use it more as a spice for the food, but 
in the 15th and 16th century, uh, pepper was not only a spice, but it was used for food preservation. You can directly link, and I'm going to do this over a series of episodes, you can directly link sailing, history, the technological development of sailboats with the exploitation of spices and specifically pepper. Now the whole reason da Gama left Portugal and sailed around the southern part of Africa was to go to Kerala, India. That's at the southern tip of India. In Kerala, that's where they grow the pepper. That's what he went there for. If someone said, hey, where was Columbus going? What port was Columbus going to? That port was in the Kerala area. That's where he wanted to go. He misjudged the world by half its distance, but that's what his intention was. So if Columbus jumped on the boat and you stood there and you're waving to him and you say, hey, where are you going? He would say, I'm going to India. I'm going to Kerala, India. Send my post to there. Talk to you later. And off he went. So this whole idea of the age of discovery was driven primarily because people needed pepper and spices to preserve the food that they had because their food was rotten. And it got rotten very fast. There was no refrigeration. There was no nothing. It just, this stuff, they'd kill a deer, have the venison, and it was rotten within a week. So the way that they preserved it so they could keep the food around because, you know, a deer's big and it's a lot of food is they put it salt on everything and they salted everything. And Shakespeare has a, a very famous line about uh, being sitting below the salt. And it's a very literal reference is because salt was so valuable that the rich people, the kings, queens, dukes, lords, whatever, they would sit at a table that was above the ground. It was built on a stage. And the reason that they were on that stage is because of the fleas and the rats that ran free on the actual dirt inside these little rooms or, or, or meeting halls. And the people that sat at the table below the lords and stuff were literally sitting below the salt because up on the table was a block of salt and that was salt. And that's how, that's where that term comes from. So you have salt as this great preservation substance, rub it on everything. I mean, you, you all know what it means. It's good for high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that's interesting is, is eating a lot of meats was left to people who were very wealthy. Poor people, the average guy, uh, didn't eat. They got their protein maybe from fish because fish was somewhat more plentiful than beef or meat or whatever, or pork. A lot of people didn't eat pork. Um, because the preservation of pork, they didn't realize that, that you had to cook it 
I mean, really cook it in order to, to kill all the bacteria. And so they spent most of their time being somewhat vegetarian. And poorer people actually had a healthier diet by today's standards than the nobles. But the nobles had the money. And the nobles wanted to have pepper. So they decided and they made a big deal of creating ships to go and get this pepper. Now, if you're the Portuguese, and I'm going to go back to this kind of frequently, is during this period, the beginning of the Age of Discovery, building a boat was a huge expense. It was a social expense. It was a group effort. It wasn't just the king who built the boat. The people that had the skills, the, the carpenters, the boat builders who had the skills to, to build this boat were also farmers. They had to feed themselves. So they only built boats, generally speaking, in the winter, which is actually quite, quite difficult. But as time went on, they became better at it. Um, they understood the concepts of sailing much better. And the whole history of, of this kind of trade that the Portuguese in particular were after, which spurred the Spanish, which spurred the English, which spurred the Dutch, and all the rest of that, was because these countries were at the very, were at the western end of the Mediterranean for the most part. And in order to get to the spices, which were in India, they had to sail to the Eastern Med, cross over the deserts, get to the Indian Ocean somehow, build another boat or rent a boat or whatever the case may be, and then sail to Kerala in India, trade, and then sail back and repeat. This was a very perilous journey. It was a very difficult journey, and it just wasn't simply feasible for most of these countries to do this. So their idea was, through this slow understanding of the geography of the earth, uh, the slow understanding that even the Catholic Church at the time viewed the earth as flat, even though a lot of people kind of knew it was round. I mean, the Greeks had established the earth was round thousands of years before the, the 15th and 16th century, 2,000 years before that. And so they built these boats and they started this whole concept of navigation. Now for us sailors, okay, this is really the beginning of um, sail as, as, we, as we know it in the Western world. But the real beginning of sail was back in the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, you know, they rowed, but they had a single sail up. Um, that worked. Um, but the key sailors, the real sailors at the time, um, back at uh, 0 AD BC um, were the Dows, which were sort of a lanteen sail. And uh, they, they could run large or they could point to the wind. They were very efficient and they still are very efficient. You can actually see them. I was in Saudi Arabia. You could, uh, and watched a, a race of Dows. Quite exciting. Very, very good boats. Very nice handling boats. Flat bottomed. But still, um, really good, firm, fast, fast boats. Very, ex very exciting kind of racing. But I digress. 
so anyway, this whole idea of, of developing sales, sale plans, um, ships that were large enough to make the voyage uh, profitable uh, was a big deal. And little known is that da Gama, when he went, got to India and he said, yeah, I want to trade, um, you know, for iron things and all the rest of this, that the, the Indian um, lord at the time who was fighting a war couldn't understand why these people would trade anything for pepper because the pepper was so plentiful. But he said, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, whatever. But da Gama kind of said some things, I suppose, and it pissed this guy off, and he kicked da Gama and, and, and out of the country. He said, Get, you know, we're not going to trade with you, go. Da Gama went back to Portugal and then came back five years later and bombarded with cannon. And, and took over that part of India for the Portuguese. And in fact, for the next 260 years, that part of India was controlled by a foreign power, whether it be Portuguese or English. All about pepper. So when you're sitting there at home and the kitchen table and you've got salt, you've got pepper. There's a lot of history behind both of them. And I'm going to get into some of that as we go along with the episodes. So the idea is food preservation. The idea is that sailing and the development of the boats and ships in the initial part of our history was all about the pepper. So this was the commodity. I mean, it lasted longer than we have oil today as being like the what the essential um, the essential product that people trade for that we can't live without and all the rest of this kind of stuff. But pepper back then, that 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 whole quest for pepper lasted a thousand years. And people developed sailboats. They developed faster boats. They had developed bigger boats. Um, they developed navigation, thousands of little ideas and things came along with it, both politically, socially, economic, of course, uh, philosophical, mathematical. I mean, a lot of stuff comes from this quest to preserve the food. And it was the ship and sailing that allowed this to happen. Which brings us to today. Now, on a boat, we're all about food preservation as well. We all have reefers. And these reefers, for most of us, are pretty inadequate. I mean, really inadequate. Let's put it, let's be, let's be honest. Um, I have, I had chartered I run a ch my charter boat, a charter boat, for close to 18 years um, in both the Caribbean and the Med. I have bought tons of food. I've had to modify my refrigerator system, and I had gone through lots and lots and lots of different problems with refrigeration because when you have a charter boat and you've got eight people for a week and you're loaded with food you can't afford to have your charter your refrigerator go down you have to have backup systems you can't afford for your refrigerator to suck all your battery power out 
I mean, there's just the refrigerator is this sort of mysterious animal that's in your boat that just takes everything you've decided that's good and just eats up everything. So refrigeration on a boat is about conservation of food and it's about conservation of electricity. So here's a couple of ways to do it. First of all, most refrigerators and boats are poorly insulated. Um, if you can, with your reefer system, look at your box, look at the outside of the box, and wherever there's a space, put some of that foam in there to sort of improve it, especially on the bottom where you have uh, it will probably, the refrigerator box will probably be close um, to the hull itself. Just f fill that whole area in with as much insulating foam as possible. The foam's great because you can just spray it into all kinds of weird crevices and stuff like that. That makes a huge difference. Okay, so that's, that's one thing is the insulation. Um, I had a fairly big... Uh, box probably at least two cubic feet I had a big refrigeration box but it was just a box and it had cold plates um, on the sides and it had uh, cold plates on the bottom and I could put a lot of food in there and I would have to keep the stuff that I wanted frozen or you know real close to freezing down on the bottom and then things like vegetables and you know perishables on the top and then of course you're opening the the, the door because it was you know top fed not side if you have a refrigerator that you have to open up from the side every time you open up the refrigerator you're just letting every single bit of cold air come out that's a luxury for a house it's not a luxury for a boat so it's always better to have a top loaded refrigerator on a boat always better plus when you're sailing and you have to get something out and you open up the refrigerator door and the boat pitches a little bit or rolls and you have everything in your refrigerator fly out that's it's a pain in the ass and i i've had that with with mega yachts where i've had refrigerator doors suddenly because of a wave of some sort or you know a thud you know the door just spring open and everything inside of it just fly out into the galley. So I'm big on top loaded stuff. And I know sometimes you can't do that, but if you have a smaller boat, um, top loading is just the best way to go. So there's a couple of different ways to run refrigerating. I started, actually literally started um, with a boat that uh, I used to go buy dry ice and put dry ice in the bottom of the refrigerator because I didn't have a compressor. So I used dry ice to keep the food. Now, if you, and I'm going to backtrack just a second, if you have a really good refrigeration system, your choices of the food you're going to eat are bigger or greater. Okay. So this is key. If, if, if you're going to be a day sailor or you're going out for a weekend or something, and you got a couple of packs of bologna and cheese and some bread, and that's all you're going to eat, good on you. You don't really need that big of a refrigeration system. You, you could have a box with ice in it, and that would be fine. But if you're really going to enjoy the relationship between sailing 
and eating and drinking and the luxury of that experience, which I promote wholeheartedly, then you're going to need a good refrigeration system. So you got two, three different ways really to do it. You can use 110, um, full on regular electricity, use 12 volt, which is pretty much the standard for everybody's boat. They have a 12 volt compressor. The older 12 volt compressors are, are, are horrible. They just, they chew up electricity and they don't um, really refrigerate very well. And the other way is to use a propane system, um, which I actually had on a boat and I found it to be expensive. And, and it didn't really work the way I wanted it. Or I, it didn't work the way I perceived I thought it would work. You know what I'm saying? It just wouldn't work. Um, it worked, but uh, it wasn't so good. So I actually have settled on the 12 volt system and a 110 volt system. Now, a lot of smaller sailboats and stuff, you don't have a generator. So we're not even, I'm not even going to, you know, address the idea of, of having a generator on your boat. So just work with a 12 volt. But there is something you can do to help because the, the real key to all of this is how much your refrigeration system sucks the juice out of your batteries. So here's the thing, and this is the conundrum. I have a refrigerator and it uses electricity. It's 12 volt. That 12 volt comes from my batteries. Now, if I'm at the dock, my battery charger is going to keep up with it. Okay. And it's basically going to be passing 12 volt across my batteries and into my compressor, my compressor, even though that's the most inefficient piece of equipment on the face of the earth will cool my refrigerator and that will work and it'll be fine. But if you're out sailing or you're at anchor, you're going to have to run your engine to use your alternator to recharge your batteries and recharging your batteries will be passing the electricity across the batteries back to this compressor that is 12 volts, that's very inefficient, that is sucking up most electricity that you're getting out of your um, alternator and turning it into cold air and cold air which as soon as you open up the door um, on a side uh, refrigerator is going to fall on the floor and it's 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 a fruitless stupid way to do it now i found uh one trick that i found it really helped me a lot because i'm going to be running the engine I took a Mitsubishi um, air conditioning pump from a car. And I took this pump and I made a bracket and I put it on my engine with another, uh, with another belt. Um, my, my engine was a Ford Lehman six-cylinder. So there was plenty of room. There was actually um, holes already drilled and tapped for an additional... Uh, pump or a second alternator basically um, but I put this uh, compressor in there I had a little 12 volt switch that uh, I ran the wire up to the galley so that when I ran the engine I just pushed the button flipped the switch and this little air conditioning pump 
would run and compress and cool my plates. And if you're on a charter or if you're cruising, you know you're going to be running your engine two, three hours a day at least, right? And so this to me was like Valhalla because it didn't take anything out of my batteries and I could save my batteries for other things like the lights, whatever. And it was a, it was a really good, good way to go. Um, that little compressor, I think it cost me like 50 bucks and, um, it, it did an amazing job. Um, so I had that, a set of, uh, cold plates for the Mitsubishi engine driven 12 volt. And then I had, uh, the regular compressor, 12 volt compressor. I had those plates in inside the box. And um, they're very easy to do. You can just, you, you don't even have to have separate space. You could stack them on top of one another. It's the same, it's easy. Just stack them on top of one another. And, and they'll work just fine. But I also had a generator on my boat. So I had another compressor, which was a 110 compressor that I could use. And to be quite honest, um, I used that mostly in Turkey. Um, where it can in in Greece because it used to get very very hot, and I would have the generator on and the air conditioning running, so I could always turn that on and keep the refrigerators going. I was it was you know a different way of of adapting to the place that I was. Now I hardly ever used it when we were sailing up uh, in Finland and Sweden. Um, up in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea um, because the air was cool and the water was cold and um, the, the Black Sea being down in between Russia and uh, Turkey because um, the, the water was basically cold and that kept the refrigeration at a better optimal temperature so it was easier to cool. So these are the kinds of ideas. So I would, I would ask people on your boat, really look at what your refrigeration system does for you. And this is, this is the first part of our food preservation um, ideas. Now, there's, those are some of the tricks that I used to, that I applied to my boat over years and years and years of experience. And they worked very, very well for me. When I moved and, and, and drove bigger mega yachts and stuff, the entire refrigeration system is because you have generators running. It's all electricity 220 in most cases or 400. Um, it was very easy to run these refrigeration systems. But in terms of traveling, and I want to switch gears here and talk about, you know, the food itself and what to eat. Because I think eating on a boat and cooking on a boat is one of the most marvelous things that one could do in life. Over 18 years of chartering, I had a number of chefs, a lot of chefs. And I'll mention Steffi and Adele and... 
um, Florence and Maggie and who else? Oh my gosh, there's tons of them. Oh, Lynn and um, Peter. Um, number of uh, um, Ariana. Anyway, all these people were uh, cooks, chefs. And I used to say, whenever I needed one, I used to go to the agency and they say, well, what do you want a chef or do you want a cook? And I say, well, if she's English or American, I want a chef. If she's French or Italian, I'll take a cook. And that sounds terrible when you think about being politically correct, but it isn't. It's a reality. A French cook is usually amazing. Um, my experience has been everybody I've had that's been a French cook has been just absolutely spot on. They make brilliant meals. They have a great touch. Um, and it's always, always wonderful. I had, uh, Lynn who was, uh, from London. Um, she worked with me for two years and, um, she made a ton of money and went back to, went back to London and opened up her own restaurant. Um, she was that good and it's a sort of a culture on boats and charter boats that the chef, um, you know, can shine and people can, 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 she can really, or he can really sort of, um, uh, hone their skills because it's a different kind of chefing, um, smaller kitchens, usually, um, tighter windows in terms of schedules um, different kinds of foods. Uh, you need a lot of imagination and you need a certain amount of, of, uh, preparation, super preparation to do that. But as, as I went on and I'll tell you this one story, I was in the Caribbean and, um, I had cooked a lot of the meals. In fact, I had gotten to the point where I had pretty much a set menu and in the Caribbean, it's all-inclusive. So on my charters, uh, people would come, and it was all-inclusive. Um, I would make them meals. They would eat them. They would be happy, and off we go. In the Mediterranean, when I chartered in the Med, I had to have a chef because we were charging $35 per meal. You charge on a per-meal basis. And so, you know, the standards have to be a little bit higher at that point. But, um, and I'm being realistic about my, my cooking skills. I have much greater eating skills than I do cooking skills. So I was in the, we were in the Caribbean and we, I forget where, what, I think we're somewhere like around Tortola. We are anchored in a kind of weird place that I'd never really anchored. And this was very early in my, my career. And, uh, I had a couple and uh, she was a big-time business exec in a in a uh, a movie company, and uh, he was a carpenter, um, handsome guy, probably an act. He was an actor, but uh, he had gone to her house in Los Angeles and was working on her house. And she was a big-time executive um, at Universal, I think. And um, so anyway, they had this relationship and. She decided, okay, we're going to go and do a Caribbean week of charter. And 
it was a lot of they had a lot of fun they were having a good time they're eating drinking all the rest of this kind of stuff and this is back in the day and i got up in the morning and it was one of those caribbean days where it was a little brisk um and i don't mean like you know the 30s or 40s i mean the temperature was probably like 60 and you know when it's normally 90 you're kind of like 60 is like freezing so she says to me she says um could could you get us a pack of cigarettes we're out of cigarettes and and i said yeah sure okay so i hopped in the dinghy and i went i knew of a little place that i had to literally almost walk my dinghy across a reef to get to and it was a little fisherman's um local store and it was it was right on the edge. The, the fishermen would come in, and that's where they, you know, they, a couple of boats there. But when I got there in the morning, there, there were no boats because they were all out fishing. So I went into this this little store, and it's a little like anybody that's been in a country store in the south knows what I'm talking about. You know, it's canned goods, and you know everything is close to expiration or expired. So this is a very, very local place. So they were actually, um, they were cooking and they were, they were making, um, lobster patties and fried, uh, conch fritters. And it, what was amazing is, is that while I was there to get cigarettes, I could smell this and I asked, can I buy some of this stuff? And, and they did, they gave me some of the crab or the lobster fritters, and they gave me some of the conch fritters. And I kind of pressed the woman because I've had conch fritters before, but but never good. Like, you know, I just didn't get the whole conch thing because it's a very chewy meat, very, anyway, it's just, the taste is good, but it's just something that, you know, I could do without, don't need to do it. But they had this old-fashioned grinder, you know, the kind of, um, silver sort of cast steel grinder that you know you can drop stuff in on the top and it comes out the side it's for meat etc it's got an old handle and it's they haven't changed in in hundreds of years since they first started making them so anyway they actually sold those in this little store they had like 10 or 11 of them which is i've never seen 10 or 11 of these little grinders in one spot just sort of cute and I bought one. I think I bought it for 25 bucks or something, which I'm sure I was over overcharged. And I bought some conch because they they you know outside the store there's there's the shells or just like they and they cut the conch out of the shells. And and you know stacks and stacks of of conch shells. And of course the the kids in the family they they take the conch shells and they paint faces and they paint on them and then they sell you the conch shells you know for tourist stuff which was all very charming in fact i had one i bought one as well and i took it back and i gave it to my guests and said well this is you know the story which i'm telling you so um i looked at this woman and i'm she's cooking and she's making these conch fritters and i asked her what her recipe was and she just sort of smiled at me and she lifted up a box of bisquick now 
Bisquick is kind of like the universal quick rise flour, right? Um, you can make pancakes from it. You can make waffles from it. You can pretty much do anything. You can put Bisquick and make fried chicken with it. I mean, you can do a lot with, with Bisquick. And you can make biscuits. So the, her thing was is to grind up the conch, throw it in with a bunch of Bisquick, and then for the liquid, she would throw in a jar of salsa. And then mix it all up so it's just, you know, like cakey. And then fry it. Well, let me tell you, that was some of the most amazing fritters I had ever had up until that point. That was ridiculous. They were fantastic. So back at the boat, I had brought the lobster fritters, which were made pretty much the same way with Bisquick and... Um, with Bisquick and what else did she use? She put in, yeah, I think she put in salsa, but a different kind of salsa. Anyway, so there was that and, and the Bisquick, and that was like her recipe. And I took it back, and my guests, they just went crazy, and I, they got their cigarettes, and they were very happy, and they, they were having champagne for breakfast. And, you know, it was just a really good charter time. It was one of those really good discovery charter times that you just dream of. So people who cruise, let me put it this way. Always keep some Bisquick on your boat. Okay. Bisquick and jars of salsa. You can't go wrong. You can do a lot with it. You can put fish in there. You can make fritters. You can do all sorts of things. You could bake the dickens out of it. You can make pancakes with it. So for all those years that I was chartering, Bisquick was one of the things that I always had on the boat. Salsa. I would buy different kinds of salsa all over the world. And in fact, I used to buy a case of salsa and when I was in Greece and Turkey, that's I would sail from the Caribbean over to um, Greece and Turkey, and I would bring jars of salsa with me. I, I'd buy a whole case of it, and I would bring that with me. And and all the people that were in the boats over there, when they get, you know, oh, I got this salsa, because you can't get that. You couldn't get Mexican food products anywhere like in Turkey and Greece. That was just, It's like impossible. Okay, today that's changed, of course. But back in the day, it was it was like totally impossible to do that. But when people tasted it, they went absolutely nuts for it, and you became their new best friend. The same with Bisquick. There's other sort of fast self-rising um, flours and mixes um, that you could use. There's a bunch of English ones and 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 different ones uh, from all over Europe, um, but. Being American, I had to have my Bisquick. And I used to take uh, conch, and I would grind up all the conch, and I would freeze it. And then when I needed to make a conch fritter, um, which was a, a great joy for for my Italian guests, because I used to have a lot of Italian guests, and they just loved the whole idea of having a conch fritter. It just, for some reason, it just tickled them pink. It was very, it was just a great treat for everybody to have that. So Bisquick and salsa are something to keep in your, in your larder. Very important. The next thing that I used to keep 
And this was because I used to have this, I have this recipe, which I will share with you, which is called the captain's chicken. And I just made it up, the captain's chicken. And I'm going to tell you how I make it. Um, because it either makes a great meal or it makes a great um, hors d'oeuvre. And when you're on a boat and you're serving guests and stuff, you find you have to have a lot of tricks for hors d'oeuvres, you know, whether it's sardines on a cracker or, you know, something more elaborate, you know, some whatever. Anyway, canopies, etc. So I came upon this recipe almost quite by accident, and I don't actually remember where I got it from. But originally what the recipe was this. You take a breast of chicken and you pound this out of it till it's very, very flat. It's important the skin side of the chicken. That's not the side that has the skin on it. Um, you have like, there's that thin white skin that's on the breast of the chicken, um, clear skin. That's the side you pound and then the other is just more of the chicken meat. Um, and you pound it very, very flat. You turn it over, right? So this is sort of the open raw part without the skin on it. And I don't mean the chicken skin, you understand. Um, the, I don't know what they call the membrane that's on the, the chicken breast without skins. So you turn it over and what you do is you slather it up with cream cheese. You take some frozen spinach, thaw it out, drain it, squeeze it, throw that on top of it. You throw some red pepper flakes on it, okay? And a, some basil in there, quite a lot of basil. I like a lot of basil on it. Gives it a really good flavor. Then you roll it up, okay? And then you wrap a piece of bacon on it, a couple of toothpicks to keep the bacon in place. You put it on a tray and you bake it until it's done. What's important is to take the juice from that okay which is the chicken juice the cream cheese and the spices that you've had in the with the spinach etc it's it's a very beautiful um uh, base to add cream and brandy to separately and cook that up you know and and make yourself a nice sauce which can go over the chicken so you take the chicken out take the take the um, toothpicks out you can throw the bacon away and then slice the chicken, the round chicken, and you get these sort of spirals of spinach and cream cheese, red pepper, pepper flakes. And then you pour, that makes like a dinner, you can do that. And you pour the, the sauce that you created with the heavy cream brandy and the drippings from the chicken. Now, while doing this, I, can, I had, and I don't know if a lot of people would know, um, I had a thing of, of, of Jimmy Dean sausage, big bulk pack of Jimmy Dean's hot sausage. And a lot of people don't know uh, that Jimmy Dean was a famous, he had a television show and he, had a, he was a famous uh, country western star. And then he got into the sausage business and made himself a fortune, Jimmy Dean. So I got this in St. Thomas, just, I don't know, it was something we said, oh yeah, we, we'll have sausages like this one day, just for breakfast. 
but I needed a, a change of recipe. I needed to make an hors d'oeuvre. So I thought, ah, I'll take this Jimmy Dean sausage. I'll do the same thing with the chicken, pound it out. I'll put some Jimmy Dean sausage in there, and then I'll put some, you know, the spinach, frozen spinach on chops, frozen spinach on it. Some red, you know, I didn't need red pepper flakes. I roll it up with the bacon, all the rest of the stuff, cook it, and see how it tastes. Well, it tastes fantastic. But the trick to it is, is when you the when you take it out of the oven, don't even bother to cook to to eat it. Let it cool, and then slice it. It'll it'll harden and slice, especially if you keep it in the fridge. It'll harden and slice. And, and it'll make these really beautiful thin slices of very, very tasty chicken sausage, whatever. And it makes a great, great hors d'oeuvre. So as a rule, I thought, oh, this is a go-to recipe. This is something I could keep. But you can't get Jimmy Dean sausage in Turkey or, you can't, or Greece or Egypt or wherever. So... Buried in my refrigeration, refrigerator, I kept um, a couple of pounds of Jimmy Teen's hot sausage in the bottom. And when you cruise, and especially when you change countries, there's little things that you pick up. You go like, I can't do without this. So they become your staples. They're like they're like the bottom. They go in the bottom of the freezer hang on to them as long as possible this will be very very cool so i was in gocek and in gocek the the harbor there or i I shouldn't say it's, it's a harbor but it's a beautiful place it's a beautiful anchorage all through this is a lot of fingers and stuff and cleopatra's baths are there Um, where supposedly Cleopatra used to come from Egypt and she used to take a mud bath and you could still take a mud bath there. And, and it's just a beautiful place. And one of the cool things about outside of Gocek and throughout this thing is, is that they have all these up in the side of the mountains is they have carved out of the mountain are these burial sites, you know, with columns and and beautiful carvings and stuff. And they were where the Phoenicians buried people. They're like, you know, it's a cemetery for Phoenician people and it's they're up and they're very fascinating to see and and you know, they're overrun. They're hard to get to if you try to climb to one, but there are some that you can go and see. But it's just that kind of history. So that's as an aside and I shouldn't have done it. But so anyway we're anchored um, you know, we're tied to a rock and so we wouldn't sway. That's the way you do it in the med. And, uh, I'm cooking my captain's chicken with the Jimmy Dean sausage. And there was a, a yacht. I don't know who owned the yacht, big mega yacht that was sharing the space with us. And, um, the odor of the sausage cooking sort of floated over there. And the next thing I know was there was a cap, not a a captain. It was a first mate and the chef's assistant came over and asked me, what was that? What's that smell? Is that sausage? Where did you get it? Uh, The owner smelled it. He loves it. He wants to know what it is. And how do we do it? And can we buy some and all the rest of this kind of stuff? 
What he was doing is an American owner was standing on the back of his super yacht smelling Jimmy Dean's sausage in Turkey and having a tremendous desire for that sausage. So what I did is I tossed them. I said, no, no, don't worry about it. I got plenty. So I gave them one of the tubes of the Jimmy Dean sausage to take back with them. They laughed about it because he was... I think the owner was from Atlanta or something like that. So that's where Jimmy Dean sausage is from, the South like that. And they got such a big kick out of it that um, later, um, months later, um, they were anchored or they were docked next to me in um, Greece, in Rhodes, Greece. And they were cleaning out their refrigerators. And um, literally, they were handing me cases of filet mignon and sirloins they say yeah we have to get rid of all this stuff do you have room for it here you go and that's that's when i really really thanked my lucky stars that i had a super efficient um, refrigeration system so that i could keep all this premium food uh frozen and um keep it from uh from uh, getting rotten and it was preserved so food is really important. I'm going to get into some wines and how to keep wines on boats, mixes, alcohol. I mean, all the years I chartered, I mean, the amount of alcohol I kept on a boat could start a small convenience store or liquor store because people would say, oh, yeah, I want this kind of alcohol. I want that kind of alcohol. This kind of alcohol is very funny. There's a lot of stories to that, obviously. Um, but the main thing that I wanted to say is, is that food preservation has been a key to uh, pushing um, sailing and sailboats and the technology involved in the marine world um, to the forefront. And that even today, though pepper is, is grown in, in other areas, it's still primarily grown in the southern part of India in a little place called Kerala. And because of that, we have the culture in the world that we have today. And that is the beginning of our food imperative uh, series in which I'll talk about food as it applies to political, social, artistic, ethical diets, etc., eating habits, of course. And from all my travels around the world, um, bringing you some insights in how to preserve your food and make the most of eating on your boat. Thank you. That was a great episode, Scott. Uh, thanks for sharing. You know, I wanted to ask you about conch because conch. I, I, I tried conch when I was in the Bahamas and I did not like it. It was rubbery. It was chewy. It, it was not good. And this is somebody like, you know, I, I grew up in an Italian family. We eat calamari. We eat fried octopus all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it just that, that I had bad conch? Yes. Because um, good conch, good fresh conch can be, can, it's still rubbery. You know, that's why I talk about getting that old-fashioned grinder. And I mean, literally getting it into like mints. Um, you know, so that you don't really have to chew it. It just sort of will just fall apart in your mouth. It is a little bit chewy. Um, 
but uh, yeah, the the key to it is is not to have big chunks of it, is to grind it up, and that's that's the emphasis is, you know, having one of those old fashioned grinders that you know you hook onto the um, uh, the kitchen uh, the kitchen table and and you put the conch in at the top and you you know turn the handle and and out the side comes comes very minced. Um, conch and it's sometimes if it appears to be really tough conch um, you could put it back in again and, and and grind it a second time so that when you do you know when you finally get your mix right and saute it up and I just should say you could use any kind of salsa you could use super hot salsa which I like the super hot salsa in conch because it's a it it, it mitigates the flavor it's a nice conch is a sort of a flat fa- flavor flat flavor but you can't say that twice. And um, Bisquick also is somewhat flat. So the extra spice makes it, you know, all the all the better and stuff like that. So some some people will take their minced conch, they will soak it in lemon um, mm. for a few hours before mixing it and cooking it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't like it because I don't like the flavor of the lemon in conch. Is there, do you have any, um, like, I know you talked about the, the captain's chicken and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people will probably cringe when you say you threw away the bacon. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you can eat the bacon. I mean, there's no, <clears throat> there's no problem in eating the bacon, but it's not kind of part of the recipe. It's just there so that, um, you know, chicken breasts are, um, very dry. Yeah. And to keep them moist, you know, that's what the bacon is on there for. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the only reason. But the key thing is is, is the sauce. Um, you know, if you take, you're going to have cream cheese, a little bit of the spinach, and, of course, the chicken. And you pour that into a pan, a saute pan. And you add about a half a cup of uh, heavy cream. All right. And I used I used to just throw in some some brandy um, as well, um, and sometimes you can throw in um, if you want to get fancy. You can throw in some 151 rum, and then set that sucker on fire um, in your galley. Um, it's just you know you can put anything you want in there, but anyway, just you know stir it up and 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 let it reduce down a little bit more. And then use that to lightly, you know, this is not something you're going to wash your chicken in, you know, once it's sliced. It's just a little flavor over the top to help with the moisture. Yeah, yeah, great. So uh, what do we have planned coming up for next week's episode? Well, as some of you know that we um, here, uh, we develop uh, television shows. And uh, one of the aspects of our television development is to to take things from the past and connect them to the present so that we can understand what the future is going to look like, or at least we hope so. So I'm going to start out with a very, very um, probably well-worn topic but I think you'll find it much more interesting in the fact that um, we're going to look at the myth of the pirate and probably not in a way that you think. 
Um, and it's connected to the myth of the American Mariner. Um, it's connected to the myth of the American Captain, which is a very iconic myth. It still exists today, um, even though it's um, probably four or five hundred years old. Um, lots been written. Um, kind of interesting stuff. And uh, I hope uh, um, everybody will join us. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Tommy and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and